Psalm 37, we've been going through Psalm 37 the last couple of weeks, continuing this evening. Everything around us, of course, is in the full bloom of spring. Most of us know right away when we wake up in the morning with our asthma and our dry eyes, right? Groping for the medicine cabinet to get our Claritin. It is lovely to see the many blossoms on the trees around the town, of course. But for a farmer, the bloom of spring is more than just pretty flowers to look at. As farmers watch the blossoms and the weather, they're trying to predict crop yield because they have to plan orders and schedules and equipment and those sorts of things. Now, more and more researchers and farmers are turning to AI machine learning to try to predict the outcome of a given harvest each season. Pretty interesting stuff. In Psalm 37, we've been learning God's wisdom from David about the lush life of the godly person. And David, throughout the psalm, is predicting the outcome of a life lived in a trusting relationship with the Lord. That person is going to be formed into a bright, shining star in God's hand. Their righteousness, David says, will be brought forth as the light like the sun in the noon sky. That's God's plan for your life. David says the righteous life is a life full of promises and provisions and protection. And we see tonight it's full of the production of spiritual fruit in all sorts of areas of our lives. You know, when we see these fruit trees around, you never really see a fruit tree where only one branch is growing fruit, right? And the rest of it is just bare. If you see that, you probably think, I probably don't want the orange off of that tree. Something's gone terribly, terribly wrong. No, you see these fruit trees and uh, all the parts of the tree have fruit all over them when they're ready to go. And just the same, all the parts of our lives are going to be developed by God as we walk with him. They're each going to bear the fruit of righteousness in our public lives, in our private lives, in our home life, in our work life, our words, our thoughts, our actions, all these things. As has been the case in the first two sections that we've seen, as David is describing this godly life, he will always contrast it with the wasted life of the unbeliever. And he shows the profound difference between the two. And so we begin at verse 21 tonight, where we see the spiritual fruit of generosity. Verse 21, the wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. When you examine the fruit hanging from the life of the ungodly, at least when David did, it was selfish in character. It's like a stone fruit with that hard core, right? You can't bite all the way through that thing. There's something rough in the middle. David describes them here as being ready and willing to take advantage of the help offered to them by others, but without paying back what is owed. Now, generally speaking, he's saying that those who are not walking with God are are sort of categorized as takers. They're takers. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, unbelievers out there who are charitable. Uh, It doesn't mean that every unbeliever defaults on their loans or anything like that. But in a general sense, what David is pointing out is that the core of a person outside of a relationship with God, that core is one of hard selfishness. Uh, It is the core of a person who is not a Christian, who's not connected to uh, Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, is going to naturally put self before others. That's just the human condition. By contrast, we're told here that those who belong to God are to be givers by nature. The new nature that we're commanded to put on and, and that new nature that was created to be like God, righteous and holy, we're told in the New Testament. 
And so it's interesting as he's contrasting these two ways of life, he doesn't say, well, the wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous borrows and does repay, which would sort of be the opposite. He says, well, the wicked is borrowing and doesn't repay, but the righteous, well, the righteous is like God, showing mercy and gives and is generous and is pouring out to people. And the New Testament talks a lot about this. Uh, The Apostle Paul especially explains, he says, hey, you know, when you become a Christian, God gives you a new nature. And he says that we are commanded to put on that nature, and that nature was created to be like God, righteous and holy. That's Ephesians chapter 4. Our God is a giver, and he is rich in mercy. And we've been grafted into him through Jesus Christ, and now he's made us new, and he is continually forming us into the image of his Son. His son is meek, and so, as we saw last time, we are called to meekness. Our God is merciful, and so we are to behave mercifully. Our God is generous beyond compare, and so we are called to generosity. And it's a selfless generosity. Uh, It's one thing to be a good lender, like David is talking about here, and you know, not breathing down the neck of the person, you know, who has borrowed from the righteous. But this idea is really expanded to the ultimate degree by Jesus in the book of Luke. In Luke 6.35, Jesus says, lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And so we're to give and to lend, expecting nothing back, and not just to friends and family, but Jesus said there in Luke 6, we're actually to act that way toward our enemies, to be merciful just as your father is merciful, Jesus says. And so quite a big difference already here in verse 21. Verse 22, for those blessed by God, by him, shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Again and again, David comes back to this promise that God's people are going to inherit the earth. Five times he reminds us of it in this little song. And this should really have a great impact on our mindset as we live out life as Christian people. Uh, especially in regard to how we interact with and bless other people. When we're generous, we're not losing anything. In fact, acts of mercy and generosity are investments in heavenly treasure. And David here throughout the psalm gives us a long view of life. And a long view of things keeps you from being short-sighted. And so the, the section here that we are going through tonight one of the applications for us is to just cultivate the fruit of generosity in your heart. How has God been generous to us? And we can think of lots of different ways throughout history or in our own personal lives. How has God been generous to me? And then realizing that, okay, well, now I am living a life where I represent God to a lost and dying world. And in the meantime, God is forming me to conform into the image of his son to behave the way that Jesus behaved, to, to act the way Jesus act. Acted And so how can I turn around and show generosity to others? Not just people it's easy to show generosity to, but Jesus expanded that in the book of Luke to even our enemies. Verse 23 says this, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. What a wonderful verse. Uh, I really think we would all do well to return often to verses 23 and 24 of this psalm and just receive God's comfort and affection there as often as we can. Two really, really great verses. Uh, If you uh, start zoning out, just, just read those two verses a few times over. 
We're told that the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. So what does that mean? Does this mean that you have no free will, that all the events of your life are already set in stone and you're just sort of robotically moving through them? Well, no, the Bible does not teach what is sometimes referred to as meticulous determinism. There's a, you know, an idea out there in theological circles uh, or in some traditions uh, in the church that they say, well, everything has been determined in the sense that God has already decided everything. He's already caused everything. Everything that happens is God's finger forcing it to happen. But the Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, you have to completely break many, many texts of the Bible to suggest that. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. You do have a free will. That's what the Bible teaches. And it talks to us about what happens when we turn from God's way. It commands us to walk in the Lord's path. It uses the same image that David uses here of a man and his steps, right? This is a consistent image throughout the Bible that we are walking with God through life. And there's warnings about, hey, don't turn from that path. And there's commands, hey, walk and follow after the Lord, and here's how you do it. And so what does it mean here when David says that our steps are ordered? Well, the term here can mean firmly established or directed or provided for. And, you know, what, what it brought, the image it brought to my mind is this. It's not unlike when you've seen in a movie uh, someone learning a dance, or maybe you've gone to a class yourself to learn some kind of actual dance. And there on the floor are an order of footsteps for you to learn and follow, right? If you want to do the dance, these are the steps. And you see the little shoe prints, right? Uh, That's sort of the image that we're, we're seeing here. God has prepared a path for his people to walk in, an individual path for you to walk in. As God looked from before the foundations of the earth and saw your life and loved you and cherished you and had intentions for you and says, oh, I I want that person. I want to make them a child of God. I want to spend an eternity with them if they will, you know, believe on me and receive my eternal life. And here's the life that I have planned for that individual with particular opportunities and particular gifts and particular, uh, you know, community that they're going to be involved in, in a particular place, in a particular era of human history, all of those sorts of things. And so God has prepared a path for each of us to walk in. The book of Proverbs says that as we seek God's will, he will show us the path to take. Isaiah says that he's made the path before us smooth. When we walk in step with what God has prepared, when we're living in harmony with the Lord, David says here that God is delighted. Really take that to heart for a minute. God delights in you when you trust him and obey him and go his way. I'm sure that in your life, because this is a normal part of life, there are people that you really love spending time with and people you don't really want to spend time with, right? That's just sort of part of life. God isn't looking down on you and saying, Ugh. is it Tuesday? Is that, is that thing today? Do I have to spend time with Gene today? Can we call him and reschedule, you know? No, God delights in you. Uh, you're a beloved child who he takes delight in. And as we walk with him, he delights in us following after him and trusting him and being in communion with him. 
He delights in your big steps and your small steps. Sometimes we talk about living life one step at a time, right? Meaning we're just barely hanging in there in our daily lives. Other times, something big will be happening in our life, and we'll say something like, well, that's a big step in your career, right? Big or small, God delights in you when you're stepping with him, and when you're walking with him, and when you're trusting him, and when you're going his way. Verse 24 says, though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Each and every one of us is imperfect, of course. We all know that. We all not only have fallen short of the glory of God and therefore need salvation, but even after we become Christians, we all fall short of the Holy Spirit's potential in us, right? The resurrection power of of the Holy Spirit indwells the heart and the life of every believer, right? Uh, And we fall short of that limitless potential, of course. But you know, even though that is the case on this side of eternity, God doesn't have any buyer's remorse as he watches your life. Consider for a moment the person who penned this verse, though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Who wrote that? Of course, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it was David, the man who slept with his friend's wife and then had his friend killed the man whose pride and arrogance to take a census of his nation led to the death of 70,000 Israelites. 70,000 Israelites. Anybody in here responsible for the death of 70,000 people? I mean, that's who's writing verse 24 here. In his old age, this was after all of these things had happened, after he had been through all of those missteps. The same man is the one who can say, with the authority of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that despite our failures, God is not going to hurl us down like a piece of trash, this piece of junk, and chuck it to the ground. In fact, David says, on the contrary, God is using his strength to keep us secure in his arms of love. When our feet slip or when we stumble, the Lord's like, I will uphold you. I'm not going to cast you down. I'm not going to cast you out. I've known you since before the foundation of the earth. I know that you're imperfect. I know that you struggle. I know that you're not going to live up to the potential of the Holy Spirit. And yet I delight in you and I love you and I'm going to uphold you. I'm going to walk with you. Do you trust me? Will you go with me? Will you allow me to be your Lord? That's the God that David is revealing in this psalm. Now, does that mean that God doesn't care when we fall short or when we choose disobedience? Well, of course not. We don't sin that grace may abound. We don't fail that his strength may abound, right? And if any of you, all of you who are parents in here, you know exactly this mentality. You don't want your kids to disobey, but it doesn't change your love for your child because they, you know, touch the thing you just told them not to touch. It changes the dynamic for that moment. You realize, okay, well, I have to now deal with this. We were going to get ice cream. Now nobody gets ice cream. But that doesn't change your love for them or anything like that. And so we don't sin that grace may abound. We don't fail that his strength may abound. But the whole point of this psalm is to talk about how a righteous person does walk with God in obedience, but that we do it imperfectly. And so as we go with God, he loves to delight in us and he's faithful to uphold us when we misstep. If we go back to that dance analogy, learning a dance through the steps, it's like God is our dance partner here, enjoying that intimate communion in the swirling of life's steps. And if we stumble, he is there to hold us up. He's leading, right? You see, you know, when people are, two people are dancing together, one of them has to lead. And he's there to hold us up and to keep us from sliding. The Lord loves you. Jesus talked about 
taking his yoke on us, right? And that there we're hitched together like oxen, close together with him being the stronger oxen and leading and us uh, being in participation with that. And I think here, this other analogy of, of just a dance partner as we're going through life, and we may slip on a couple of those steps, but our Lord is there upholding us by the strength of his hand. Verse 25 says, David speaking, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his descendants begging bread. This was the testimony of David's life. He had certainly experienced multiple instances of dramatic provision when he and his men were hungry. There was the showbread incident when he was on the run from Saul. Zebra, zebra, a zebra came. <laughs> zebra brought him food when he was escaping from Absalom. We talked about this a lot last time. Uh, this is not an absolute guarantee for all believers everywhere. It's a sad truth that there are plenty of God's children who are going to bed hungry tonight. Um, but what is absolute is God's faithfulness. It is absolute that he is not going to forsake us. He's not gone. He is always Emmanuel, God with us, and we can go to him with any need, no matter how small or large, knowing that he is mighty to save. God is able. And in this dispensation, in this church age, we're told in the New Testament that God's strength is made perfect through weakness. And so we don't need to be troubled when we come across um, a statement like this one, I've never seen a righteous person begging for bread. That's not an absolute guarantee to every person. And as we've been pointing out again and again, the rules for covenant were different for David and Israel than they are for the church. But here, along with the fruit of generosity, we want to be harvesting crops of praise. Specifically, like David does here, we want to be regularly and publicly honoring God for his faithfulness. Let's talk to one another about what God has done for us and what we've seen him do. Let's tell people about it. Uh, David is saying here, hey, you know, this is the testimony of my life. I want to talk to you about what I've seen in my life, what God has done, and I've witnessed it. And he's sharing here, I've been young, now I'm old, and here's what's going on. And we want to just be people who are harvesting crops of praise to God. Not just when we sing, although the singing is commanded and the singing is important and the singing together like we do on Wednesday night and Sunday morning is special and it is unique but also in our conversation and in our relationships, just talking about the faithfulness of God. Here's what God has done. Because God is real and he is doing things. And the people out there in the world who aren't exposed to a God of love and a God of grace, the God of the Bible, they maybe have the sneaking suspicion now, well, these people believe in God, but he doesn't do anything. He's just mad all the time. You have to just do certain things, and if you do them enough and good enough, then maybe you'll get past the pearly gates, you know? But God is doing stuff. He's doing things in your life. He's proving himself. He's showing himself strong in your life and in our community and throughout history, and we want to be people who are harvesting fruit of that praise as we talk about these things. Verse 26, he, speaking of the righteous, he is ever merciful and lends... And, the descend and his descendants are blessed. So he goes back to what he talked about in verse 21. And it sort of struck me here that as David is talking about his own experience and his own testimony of what he has seen in his life, it kind of struck me that David see, saw the righteous people doing, actually doing what they should be doing, right? 
Remember, he's speaking in these two verses about his personal experience, his personal witness. And maybe verse 21 sort of came off as theoretical or academic, but verse 26 is like actual, right? They actually lend. They're actually generous. They really are merciful when they deal with others. It's not just an ideal out there somewhere. This is what should happen. Verse 21, this is what should happen. And David says, well, yeah, that is what should happen, but you get to verse 26 and it's really happening. The people are actually doing it. Uh, sort of a, a reverse example that was helpful for me to think through all of this. It reminded me of all those politicians who run on a platform of fiscal conservatism, right? Oh, we all need to stop spending so much money in the government. There's a lot of people who, who were fiscally conservative when they were collecting votes, and then once they're in power, it's all out the window, right? I mean... <laughs> The national debt right now is $22 trillion. Nobody knows how much money that is. <laughs> Although if some helpful mathematician broke it down, that means if we were to spread all that debt around to each and every single American, every single one of us in this room and every single person who lives in America would each owe $67,000. And so people come in and they say, I'm a fiscal conservative. And then they pass this budget that, that like spends an obscene amount of money more than we have, right? That's like the opposite of what David's talking about. He says, well, look, the righteous are supposed to be merciful and people who lend and people who give. And then he gets down to verse 26 and he says, you know what I've seen? I've seen that righteous people actually do the things that they are supposed to do. Again, we see a great opposite example of this in the Pharisees. And Jesus would say all the time, you know, you say one thing and then you do the opposite. You're, you're washed on the outside, you're dead on the inside. You pretend you're the bridge between God and man, but all you do is heap burdens on people. But the fruit of, the, of righteousness isn't just hypothetical, right? Spiritual fruit is not meant to be hypothetical or just theological or just in a book somewhere. It's a real thing. It's meant to be growing in our lives. It impacts how we relate to people. And not just with those who need help, but those we're lending to in this song. But we see there in the home as well, his descendants are blessed. He's not just a Christian towards other people outside of the home. You're a Christian towards the people in your home. And as we walk down the steps God has fashioned for us, we become a blessing to others, not a burden to them in the home, in the community, toward our enemies. That's the power of God's work in our lives. That's the power of spiritual fruit. And it's meant to be actual. It's meant to be real. It's meant to be almost tangible in the sense of, hey, the Bible says that a spiritual person who follows after Christ is generous or is patient or is, and go find you know, the lists or the songs that the kids sing in children's worship. And those are meant to be actual things that the Lord is doing in us as we walk with him. Verse 27 says, depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. David consistently presents all of this as an either or arrangement. It's a binary decision. There's just two categories in his mind. There's righteousness or wickedness, evil or good, following God or not following God. No third option. Going God's way isn't something we do from time to time when convenient. Godliness isn't an accessory in the Bible. It's a different way of life. It's an altogether different direction which takes you to a different destination. 
To be a child of God means to turn to him and away from sin and away from idols, to turn off of the old path and go on to the new one that God has carved out. As he said back in verse three, David says again, do good. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Well, what does that mean, David? What does it mean to do good? And he gives us a lot of practical ways that we can do good throughout the psalm. The fruit of goodness should be ripening on the branches of our lives. In the context tonight, one of the many ways we do good is through generosity. The Bible encourages this fruit in our lives. Jesus said it is better to give than to receive, right? And we heard Luke 6.35 earlier. Proverbs 11.25 says, the generous soul will be made rich. And as we've, noticed, uh, as we've noted before, the temporal land promises made to the Jews in the Old Testament are not applied to us. So David says, and you'll live in the land forevermore. Well, David is thinking not just of the ultimate kingdom of God, but he's thinking of the land covenant that God had with Israel. Now, that doesn't apply to the church. The church hasn't replaced Israel. Rather, here's how we can think of verse 27 in a New Testament context. Here's 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19. See how it parallels what David said. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Verse 28 of our text. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. You and I, if you're a Christian here tonight, we are safe in the hands of God. We are protected, we are preserved, but that does not remove the responsibility of obedience from us. God has decided what is right and what is not. God has decided what is good and what is not. He loves justice. David's clear about that in this psalm. And we are commanded to go his way. It's one thing to stumble and fall short of God's highest for us. We're all imperfect. We're all gonna stumble. God knows that. But it's another thing altogether to just walk in disobedience as a regular pattern of life. If you're a Christian, that's really not possible according to the New Testament. Ephesians chapter two says that Christians once walked in sin and disobedience before they were saved, that people once walked according to the course of this world. But then Paul says, now we have been made alive and set on a new path, a new set of steps in which we love what God loves, that we think like he thinks, that we speak like he speaks, that we're continually growing in his grace. And so it's one thing to stumble, and God knows about that. Your sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven at the cross. But don't allow yourself to be tricked into thinking, well, I can live a lifestyle of disobedience, a habit of disobedience. And you just got a real problem if, if you are living a lifestyle of disobedience toward God in some area. Verse 29 says, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Again, the promise and the reminder of what's coming. In this psalm, it is a constant calibration for us to keep life in perspective. In Proverbs 2, Solomon is describing the godly as being people of integrity. And he says there that they, the people of integrity, are the ones who inherit the land. And so we're seeing lots of spiritual fruit in these verses, fruit of mercy, fruit of generosity, of obedience, of integrity. And now in verse 30, the fruit of wisdom in the life of the righteous. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom and his tongue talks of justice. Our words, like our thoughts and our actions, are to be conformed into the righteous image of Jesus Christ. 
that our words are to be like a crate of nourishing ripe fruit, not rotten fruit. No one wants a rotten apple. They're gross. And no one wants, and God doesn't want our words to be rotten either. The child of God here is described as speaking about the truth of God, about the character of God, the goodness of God. Now, perhaps at this point, a reader might think, well, I see all these great descriptors and promises concerning the righteous person. I see him talking about the steps, but what are they? What are the, where's the starting point? How come I don't see, you know, steps on the ground in front of me? How do I find the next step on this path David is talking about? Well, the answer is furnished in verse 31. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. And so the steps of life are found by taking heed according to the word of God. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, right? More than taking heed, David describes it here by internalizing and following God's word, where it's not just a reference we turn to when we need it but that it is the supply, it is the very core of our being. When David examined the fruit of the righteous, when he took a good look at what godliness really is, he discovered that it was God's word that directed a person's steps through life. When a person believes and submits to God's word, and that's when the Lord is able to develop all of that fruit and accomplish the wonderful things that we've been reading about these last few weeks. And of course, it doesn't happen all at once. We don't need to think that this is all a magical thing that we just, I wake up tomorrow and I do everything right and I know everything to do and I'm suddenly wise. That's just not how it works. John Phillips wrote this, God's promises do not ripen in a day. And that's true. But as we walk with God, as we trust him, and as we look forward to the ultimate completion of his work in us, We are able to know which way to go in life by keeping God's word in our hearts. As we step through each day, this walk with the Lord that is described in the Bible is not meant to be a trudge. It's meant to be a delightful dance with the one who loves us. We delighting in him, he delighting in us as he brings forth our righteousness like a star in the sky. That's it, I'm done. That was my alarm to be done. (laughs) 